Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be looking at chapter, the end of chapter 3. I mentioned last week that I was... Uh, I promised some of you some visitors last week that if you came back this week, you'd hear a really good preacher. That would be our, our Pastor Justin. But uh, it's kind of interesting. I think I mentioned that I was, what I'm doing here in this, uh, what I did last week was I'm going through some of my old sermons on sermon audio that I preached 10 or 12 years ago and just re-listening to them and asking, okay, if I had to preach this today, how would I do it differently? So I'm, I'm restudying the sermons and, and putting them together. It's kind of loose notes that if I ever have to preach again, I'll have something prepared. And I had one prepared for uh, last week, which was the, the earnestness and the thanksgiving that induced Paul to pray this prayer. And I mentioned that I had notes for the next sermon, which would be the actual petitions of that prayer. And then I indicated that I was very anxious to preach that sermon. I wish I could preach it next week. And uh, even kind of prayed that I'd be able to preach it soon, not realizing that in order for me to have an unscheduled pulpit opportunity, something bad has to happen to Justin. And when I got that phone call, I think it was what, uh, not a phone call, but a text message either yesterday or Friday saying that Justin was sick and probably wouldn't be able to preach today, I thought, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> so <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to do the, the f and in preparing this, I basically have made some time for review. I'm not going to flatter myself to think that all of you came home from the retreat last week and ran and listened to my sermon to see what I said. I'll assume most of you didn't do that. So we're going to spend some time reviewing. And instead of looking at, at two petitions, we'll simply look at the one petition, the first petition that Paul offers. And then I have notes in the third one, but when I preach that, for Justin's sake, whenever. If the Lord provides opportunity, fine. If not, but I'm not going to ask to preach that anytime soon. So I apologize, Justin, for... Uh, being somewhat responsible for your sickness, but uh, I'm speaking in jest, of course. Okay, so, again, what we did last week, let me get my notes here. I had a little tragedy this morning. I couldn't get my sermon to print, so I'm using a unfamiliar media, my notepad, my iPad, with these notes, so. Okay. So we're going to look at Paul's prayer. It goes from... Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 17 to 3, 11. Again, last week we looked at the, the motive, uh, the emotion or uh, the spiritual drive that went into Paul's prayer. Um, and basically we saw what happened. What was, we sort of need to go back to look at some of the, uh, the context of what happened with Paul and the Thessalonians. To do that, we need to go all the way back to Acts 17, uh, where Paul, as was practiced, he would go into a city, and he would go into the synagogues to preach the gospel there. And he would go in there and preach and explain to the Jews that Jesus was actually the Christ. And this is what he did in Acts 17 in the city of Thessalonica. He came from Philippi, and then went right to Thessalonica in Acts 17, and walked into the synagogues, and it says for three Sundays, or three Sabbaths, he went there and preached. And it says this, he visited them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And normally when that happened, there were a number of reactions 
And what would happen is the Jews would normally rebel. Some would believe, others would rebel. And within a short period of time, they would remove him from the synagogues. He would be kicked out of the synagogues. And a number of believing Jews would go with him. And there also would be Greeks there in some times. For example, in this particular case in Thessalonica, it says there were God-fearing Greeks and a significant number of leading women that went with Paul to begin this church. And as soon as this church was started, there uh, began a, a rebellion in the city. And this happened many times. Uh, it's not unusual for this to happen, that the Jews became jealous, and or sometimes it was the pagans who would become jealous, and they would raise up a mob against Paul and against this church. Uh, this happened in Philippi. Remember, Paul was arrested and thrown in prison after being beaten, and the Lord split the jail open, and Paul escaped, and that's how we have the, the wonderful story of the, the conversion of the Philippian jail. Well, so Paul wasn't, he was used to this kind of behavior and it didn't surprise him. However, in Thessalonica, uh, it seemed to be different. It seemed to be a lot more severe. Normally, Paul had the opportunity, even with these rebellions or these mobs, to, to spend time at the church teaching there, uh, grounding the people in the faith, uh, spending time uh, instructing them on how to live the Christian life. And he would spend uh, ex extended periods of time with these people in the midst of this persecution. But in Thessalonica, it was so bad that they felt it better that if Paul left the city and went somewhere else and left that church there by itself. So Paul goes in, uh, he preaches the gospel to these people, uh, there's a rebellion that comes up, and it's so great that the church and Paul himself thought it's better that we leave instead of causing a rebellion. And we spent some time last week looking at what that meant when a city rebelled or there was a mob uh, taking over in Rome. The Rome Romans took that very, very seriously. So they felt it better to remove Paul and leave that church by himself. So now that left the church in a very dangerous situation for two reasons. First of all, they were under a great withering persecution, something like Paul had never seen. And secondly, uh, they simply were not properly instructed or equipped on how to live the faith, not at least to Paul's satisfaction or Paul's desire. So there's this sort of double-edged sword here against the church's throat. First, they were suffering greatly for the sake of the gospel. Uh, perhaps more than any other church Paul had planted or established. And secondly, in Paul's mind, they were not adequately instructed to handle this persecution, to stand up under this persecution. So you can imagine Paul, as he separated from these brethren, uh, their welfare weighed heavily on his mind, and, and they were the object of his earnest prayers day and night. Add to that, he had no news of their welfare. He had gone to Athens by this time, uh, where he preached there, and no news. Nothing. He tried, he says, a number of times to go there and to visit them, but was uh, uh, prevented by Satan from going. So he, he's praying for this church, concerned about their welfare, and not hearing any news. So you can imagine Paul's heart, uh, how, how heavily this weighed upon him. And Paul, we understand what he did. He prayed uh, for a length of time. He prayed earnestly for these people. Earnestly, what we mean by that is praying with a seriousness, being aware of the reality of the situation. In Paul's mind, this church could be destroyed. Satan could tempt this church to such a degree under this persecution and his lack of, of instruction, so much so that the church simply ceased to exist. Remember what Paul says, that he thought that Satan would tempt you and our, our labor would be in vain. It says he feared that happening. 
So Paul, in his mind, this church really could suffer to the extent that it no longer existed. They were tempted so much that the labor that he put into them would be in vain. The only way to interpret that would be in vain is that the church just simply ceased to exist. It was destroyed. And so Paul uh, prayed for some indefinite period of time uh, until he says he could simply take it no longer. Something had to be done to get news of these people and their welfare. So Paul is moved to action. A prayer for him is good, it's satisfactory, but it only went so far. Paul had to actually do something to find out about the welfare of these people and to help them if they could be helped. And so in doing that, what he says, he sends Timothy. We see this in chapter 3. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, this stress, this pressure about how the church is doing, about their welfare. When we couldn't deal with it any longer, he says, uh, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. So he suspended his missionary activities, sent the crowd on to other cities while he remained in Athens waiting for news from Timothy. So Timothy goes, Paul stays in Athens and waits news for him. Uh, Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. So he sent Timothy to do what he couldn't do in those first weeks there, to strengthen and encourage their faith. In the space of two verses here, we have Timothy goes. We're not sure how long he went, how long he stayed. But then he returns and he reports his findings to Paul. And to Paul's utter delight, Timothy brings back good news. He brings back very good news. And that news is that the church has survived. He tells Paul that they have faith and they have love. And those are two signs to Paul that there is a spirit-filled, godly, growing, strongly established church. Two things, faith and love are what Paul looked for in a church that ensured him that that church was persevering and was moving forward into faith. One man says, for Paul, belief in God and his saving purposes should lead to a response of acting love manifested particularly in the way Christians behave towards one another. So in the midst of this, this persecution of this great suffering, these people's faith had grown. Their trust, their confidence in God had grown and their love for one another and for Paul himself had grown as well. We see this double-sided coin in Galatians 5, 6. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So these two uh, qualities Paul wanted to see, faith and love, were there and were increasing in Timothy's mind. Now imagine your frame of mind when Paul hears this news. How do you think he responded? After all this time, all this concern, all this pressure weighing upon his heart, all these earnest prayers to hear news that God has preserved them and that they are growing, it must have, first of all, been a great relief to his soul and his heart to know that they're okay. And secondly, would have been a great expression of thanksgiving. Be thankful to God, to have a joy that can only be expressed through giving thanks to God. We used the illustration last week of a a mother and father hearing that their child is dying and that uh, in mourning they will either know, by mourning they'll either know the child will, if he will live or if he will be safe. And that those parents spending all night in prayer for their child, uh, really believing that this child could die and that God is able to save him. And upon hearing news from the doctor that the child is safe, imagine the joy that those parents would feel. 
Well, this is something of what Paul felt hearing, that, that these brethren are fine and doing well, that God has preserved them, and they are growing. He says this, Now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord, how can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day, he says, we earnest, earnestly that we may, he said, night and day we pray earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's response is twofold. Uh, there's a joy which is expressed in a thanksgiving to God, and there is a more earnest prayer to these people for their welfare. Uh, the, the earnestness here is a, the idea of um, not just earnestness, but a, a great, most earnestly, he says, we pray. Uh, what Paul's doing here is forming a verb, a superlative, where he takes a, a verb that means a great amount or a significant amount and adding prepositions to it that mean... It, basically make it something that is utterly immeasurable. We see the word most earnestly here. Uh, in the Greek, that would relay the idea of, of abundance, abounding, more than anything that can be measured. So night and day upon hearing this news, Paul falls down and prays night and day earnestly, more than anybody could ever expect for these people. And there's two things he wants. One, he wants to be able to visit them but with a purpose, not just a, a vacation where he goes and stays there for a while and hangs out with them. He wants to go there so that he can supply what is lacking in their faith. This uh, instruction, this teaching that he couldn't give when the church was formed, he wants to go back and do what he couldn't do then to give them something that will strengthen their faith, that will increase their faith. This is what Paul is earnestly praying for for these people. And again, and it's, it's an expression of his thankfulness to God that he has preserved them, they are safe, and that they are going. One of the words that's used to make this superlative is the word hyper, where we get the word uh, hyperactive or hyperbolic or, or hypo, hypercritical. It, it means something beyond measure. So the, the, the way that I pray, the earnestness that is in my heart right now in praying for you is something that is beyond measure. So two things he prays for. One, he would be able to visit them. And number two, that in that visit, he would supply what is lacking in their faith. In other words, he wants to finish what he started, complete the process that was aborted at, by his early departure. Again, there's much, Timothy went and helped, but there's much more Paul could do by being physically present with him. Now, that's sort of the first very loose prayer that Paul makes for these people, that he'd visit them and be able to complete what is lacking in their faith. The second part of this prayer is rather interesting. If you look at your, your Bibles, if you go to uh, uh, 1 Thessalonians 9, or I'm sorry, 3 to... Um, 10, but we have this, he says, I pray more earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Or see face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Then he says in verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So now he's still is praying that he wants to go to them, but now he's going to be more specific about what needs to be done for these people if they are to persevere if they're in their faith, if what is lacking is to be supplied. He says, he said, he prays first of all, God would direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all we do for you you 
as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So now Paul seems to go into a, a, a different type of prayer. And if you read the two, there, there's a difference. One, he's simply expressing to them what he's praying for. I want to come and I want to strengthen you. I want to supply what is lacking. But in verse 11, it seems to increase in its intensity. And we see this in the, what's called the mood in the Greek. There's a mood in Greek called optative. And what it expresses is a strong wish or desire. And often the language of prayer is expressed in this optative mood. And it's a may the Lord. If you ever see that like in the Psalms, may the Lord do this or may the Lord do that. Uh, it's that optative mood. And that's what Paul is doing here. And it's often called by, by scholars a, a prayer wish. And I think what Paul's doing is two things. One, he's in a sense opening the door to his prayer closet so that the Thessalonians can hear explicitly what he is praying for. Not just a general prayer, I want to come and strengthen you, supply what is lacking, but a very specific prayer as to what qualities he wants God to instill in his church if they are to be established and if what is lacking is to be supplied. And there are basically two things that Paul says here. The first is love. And the second is holiness. And if we look at the rest of Thessalonians, immediately in verse four, chapter 4, Paul goes into an explanation about holiness, telling them to turn away from immorality, to not act like the Gentiles do. He says, uh, finally, brethren, he says, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from us how you ought to walk and plead and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And he goes on simply to explain that you are to control your passions, that you are to bring them under the control of the Holy Spirit, and you are to be sanctified and holy and blameless before God. God. So he's explaining to them the one thing he's already asked for, holiness. And then if you jump down to verse 9, he goes into love, explaining love. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. And even though that's true, he goes on and gives more specific instruction on how to love. So this prayer, Paul is expressing what he wants this church to have, and then immediately he begins giving them instruction on how to do it. And there's sort of a, almost a, a dilemma here in, in that how is it that Paul prays specifically, and he's praying here to Jesus, the Lord Jesus, that you would increase this love uh, more and more. And the fact that he then instructs them on how to do it. It's not like Jesus just has a, uh, you know, a lightning bolt that hits them and suddenly they know how to love and everything is fine. No, he also supplies instruction. And all through the New Testament, as we'll see later, there's instruction on how we are to love. So yes, Jesus supplies it, but there's also instruction on how we are to go about loving our brother. And now Paul doesn't mention here another side of love, and that is love for God. But that's assumed. If you love your brother, then you are loving them out of response to your love for God. That comes first, and then the love for brother comes second. So Paul leaves that out, which is fine, and focuses on love for brother. And how do we explain this? What, how can we illustrate this idea that, that Jesus pours out the love in our hearts, he gives us that love, and yet we are still in, instructed on how to love
Well, a good illustrate, a good way to illustrate it is to, well, first of all, acknowledge that, again, the love in the scripture, it, it does from, come from Christ himself. Uh, Romans 5, 5 says, God, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Spirit comes to us, and one of his primary roles is to ensure that we know the love of God, that that love of God is poured out within our hearts, so then we could then shed that love or show that love among those who we interact with. And uh, this is what Jesus was given. He was given this privilege by the Father at the session of Christ. One of the great responses of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, the place of all authority, is that he has been given the Holy Spirit. This was Peter's argument, as we saw a couple months ago, in his sermon on Pentecost. How do you explain all this spiritual phenomena going on here? And Peter's response is, this is given by Christ. God sat him at his right hand through his resurrection and session, and now he has given him the spirit for him to use as he will to establish his church. Peter says this, being therefore, this is his conclusion to his sermon in Acts, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So it's Jesus' prerogative to take the Spirit and use him any way he can to build up and preserve his church so that that church can be presented to the Father as holiness and blameless. And one thing Christ does is he gives the Spirit to pour out his love in the church so that that church can properly love as Christ himself loved the Father and loved the church. Now, if that's true then, how is it that we still need to be instructed on how to love? Well, imagine you're a, you're a soldier. And uh, one day, you're, you're, let's go back to the ancient world. One day your uh, commander comes and he gives you a, a weapon, a, a far superior weapon than your opponents have. Let's say it's the uh, maybe 13th or 14th century where you're given a gun and you're used to using swords. And so he's, okay, here's a weapon that will give you the ability to easily conquer any enemy that you have. Now, if this man simply takes that gun and starts using it as a sword to bludgeon people and, and to stab people, it's pretty much going to be useless. No, even though he's got this great weapon, he still needs to be instructed on how to use it properly. How do you load it? How do you load it quickly? How do you aim it? How do you shoot it? And, and so forth. So there needs to be instruction on how to use this weapon, even though the weapon is in the person's possession. And it's the same thing with the Spirit. Christ gives him to us. He, he pours out that love. We experience the love of God in a very unique way. But then there's still instruction on how we are to show and demonstrate that love. Some of it may be instinctive. Other times it's not. I know with me, yeah, I've, I feel that his love's been poured out upon me, but I've made many mistakes in my Christian life in a way that I love people. That instruction has set me straight, and I continue to do that today. Love people in a way that is not proper, that is not adequate, that is not worthy of who that person is, and the scripture corrects me. So it's perfectly compatible to say that he, he gives this to us, and at the same time, he also instructs us so that we can use that love in a more efficient, a more honorable way that, that glorifies him and actually helps our brother. So now, 
He wants this love to be ours. Paul, again, explicitly prays to Jesus that we would love, that this love would be increased. It would overflow and abound. And Paul here, again, is using this idea of these these prepositions uh, to add more and more to these superlatives. Uh, The first word there is to increase, and it does mean to increase, to go beyond measure, something that is so great that it cannot be measured. But also he uses the word to overflow. So, yeah, I want it to be more than you could ever imagine, and I still want all that to just overflow in the amount of love that Christ gives you. And again, this is an appeal directly to Jesus. You ever argue or discuss with people whether or not you can pray to Jesus? Well, Paul here is doing that. It's the Lord Jesus that he is asking to pour out this love in the hearts of the people. So, not just a minuscule amount. He wants it to overflow, abound, more than they could ever imagine, and even that amount overflowing and increasing all the more. So this is his desire that Jesus do this for the people. Now, how do we do that? And we could spend a whole month just looking at love. We don't have the time to go through all the New Testament and and to explain uh, how to love or all the New Testament teaches. But I think a summary here of love that I find very helpful is in Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Here Paul is instructing the people on how to love, basically. Um, He's telling them how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you are called, in all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We are to speak the truth in love. The body is to grow and build itself up in love. Uh, Paul begins chapter 5 with these words, therefore, being imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this passage is just saturated with the idea of love, how to live according to love, specific instruction on how to love. And this passage doesn't mention love, but but it's encased in the teaching about love. So I think it's a perfect summary of what love is, and I use this often to examine my own heart to see if I am properly loving my brethren, my family, uh, my wife, uh, my children as well. And the verse starts again, listing the qualities that are not love, that negate the idea of love. Uh, He says, make sure that there's no bitterness, no wrath, no anger, no clamor. Clamor here is the idea of loud, uh, overly emotional, excited quarrels where you express your anger verbally at another brother. Uh, slander. This is the word used for blasphemy. Uh, it actually is the word blasphemy. It's speech that is meant to degrade or defame somebody, uh, put them down or create in someone else an unfavorable opinion of that particular person. So right off the bat, we had all of these uh, feelings toward another brother uh, that we can immediately rule out as being love. This is not what love is. If you're acting this way towards a brother, if you are showing bitterness, anger towards him, clamoring, uh, speaking in a slanderous way, then you are not loving that brother. But Paul then moves on to the positive. Just as love is the absence of these things, it must also be replaced by something else. It's not the absence of bad motives or evil motives. It must be replaced with something. And Paul says, first of all, that we are to be kind, uh, sympathetic, and forgiving to one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as Christ has forgiven you. The kindness here is not some uh, political kindness that we often hear about in the news today, how we treat 
immigrants or, or criminals or the poor. Uh, there is a kindness that we extend to such people, but it's not the progressive or political kindness that we see being expressed today. Uh, nor is it just a random act of kindness like helping a person uh, fix a tire uh, you see on the side of the road with a flat. Those are, those are good and those are wonderful, but it's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is speaking to a, a community of people uh, whose lives are intertwined, who know each other deeply. And it's in that context that this kindness is being expressed. People are, who are united into a community, it goes far deeper than just pulling over the side of the road uh, and getting cold and sweaty, helping somebody change a tire, and then leaving and never seeing that person again. It's far more profound than simply sending money to a political cause that you approve of. There's an intertwining of lives that is taking place here, a shared interest among a community. And it's in that context we are to show this kindness. It demands sacrifice. Uh, it demands uh, my needs often being set aside for the sake of another person, my feelings being put aside for those of others. It means that I am to treat uh, kindly a person who I may not like very much, uh, whose personality is far different from mine, uh, whose nature and disposition simply grates me the wrong way. I may be a happy, easygoing person who never has a bad thing to say about anybody, uh, and, but I have to deal with a brother who is naturally gloomy and morose. Or you may be a person who is gloomy and morose and don't like people who are always happy and speaking good of other people. You may think it's, it's a plastic, uh, superficial uh, face that you're putting on. They don't realize the, the depths of, of sorrow and sadness in the world. So this, this continual happiness is just a facade. That's what you think about these people. So you're dealing with different types of people, different personalities, different passions. And we all have to get along. We all have to serve, serve beside one another and help people. You may have a, a, be a sullen person with a glum disposition uh, who simply doesn't like happy people. They rub you the wrong way. And you've got to be with those people. You've got to love those people, help those people. Uh, there may be social distance. Uh, you are refined. You know that you, uh, what to do with a finger bowl at a table. What, what grates you more than anything is when a person picks up a, a dessert fork and eats his steak with it. That just drives you crazy. You're sh they're showing that how uncivilized they are. That may be who you are. And what irks you are people who simply aren't, who, who slurp their soup or pull their spoon the wrong way. I can't remember if it go forward or backward. One, one way. And you don't know that. And you sim simply scoop it up to your mouth. You may disregard that person or show contempt to that person for that very, very superficial thing. But you now have to love that person, care for that person, help them, and assist them. There's a, a, a movie called The Flamingo Kid. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I wouldn't recommend it. But I remember it was a story of a, uh, who was it, Matt Dillon, I think it was, was a a typical middle-class kid from Brooklyn and had a job as a cabana boy at a very uh, lucrative or, or wealthy uh, resort at, in Long Island somewhere. And uh, he goes there to work for the summer and, and falls in love with one of the, the members. They're a very wealthy girl whose father was very wealthy. And he goes to eat at their house one day. And uh, he's really out of place, big time. And he's got this weird habit when he eats, he, he leans forward and kind of hums like this mm, as he's chewing his food. And people actually do do that. And so he's at this very lucrative house at this very uh, formal setting. 
and he shoves a bunch of food in his mouth and starts going like this, leaning back and forth, going mm, as he's chewing. And of course, everybody is absolutely scandalized by it. Well, you may be those people sitting at that table, and Matt Dillon may be sitting there humming, chewing his food. Well, how do you respond? Well, you have to respond out of kindness and tenderheartedness. Uh, some people simply weren't properly trained to eat. My, my father, we had three places at the, at the table. My dad was at the head. My mom was at the right. And we're on the left. And uh, when the person that sat to the left of my dad was the person with the worst manners. Because what he did, he'd sit there and watch you. And if you didn't hold your fork right or put food, too much food in your mouth, he would take his fork and then stick you in the forearm. Not hard, but enough to get your attention. So I was trained that way. And I remember one time we went out with a, a brother at our church. We just, just came to the church. We're taking him out to dinner. And we went to, uh, where was it? Some place where we had steak. And this, this brother takes his fork, stabs the steak, and just starts eating it like this without cutting it. And I'm thinking, oh, man. And I, I was scandalized. And I had to go home and, and reconsider. Think, well, that's how that brother was taught. There's nothing against him. I should not show any animosity or any anger towards that brother whatsoever. And that's the kind of people we have to deal with. And we love them. If you do that and you're with me, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But again, that's the kind of people we have to deal with. And again, they're people that we have to love. And they have to love us maybe for our snobbery and our inconsiderateness towards them. So again, all these people are being brought together uh, with different social backgrounds, uh, different habits, uh, different knowledge, different advancements in their growth, uh, different social statuses, different races. And we're all to come together and to act tenderheartedly and kindly to one another. And that's what love does. But there's a second part of, forgive, of loving as well. And this to me is the most important and the most uh, often neglected. Is that is we have to forgive one another. If we can't forgive each other, then we're not going to be able to love one another. That person will do something that will offend you. And you're going to hold it against him. You're going to hold a grudge against him. And that bitterness, that anger, that wrath will, will lead to slander and clamor against that brother. And you will not be walking according to love. Uh, Mark Dever tells a, a wonderful story of a, uh, uh, a dinner he had or a lunch he had with an aunt who was a very distant relative. He hadn't seen her in like 20 or 30 years. So he's sitting down talking to this aunt. And she inquires as to what he does for a living. And he mentions, well, I'm a, a pastor of a church in Washington. And her comment is, well, those churches are just full of vipers. They're a bunch of snakes there. I stay away from churches. And Endeavor uh, brilliantly uses this as an example to explain the gospel to her and says, yeah, we are vipers. The church is full. Everybody sitting there has poison and has fangs because of the sin that remains in them. But we come together. We're sanctified vipers. We're growing in grace vipers. We still have poison and fangs, but they're being uh, tamed and controlled by the Lord's sanctifying grace within us. And after explaining this to her, he says, and you know, aunt so-and-so, there's always room for one more viper to slither in under the door. And uh, it, it was a beautiful illustration of who we really are, that we are vipers, that we still have sin in us. So we are the most refined of us, the most distinguished, the most godly of us are at times going to do things that offend, that bother, that grate on other people. And it may be something superficial or it may be an actual deep sin that we commit against somebody. And your protection for that is forgiveness. 
you forgive them. You ever see those YouTube people, they have the, the snakes, you know, they pull this big box out and there's this 12-foot cobra that these guys take out and handle and they bring it up to, they'll play with it for a little while, the snake's going like this and lurching at people and they'll get it and get the, the what do they call it, extract the poison from it. And, uh, and they have all these deadly poisonous snakes. And one thing those places have in a little refrigerator, they have what's called antivenom. And if anybody gets bit by those snakes, they have that antivenom to take out and give that person so the snake bite doesn't have the effect that it would normally have. And many of these men talk about times they got bit. One was saying he spent like a week in an iron lung after being getting bitten by a cobra with the antivenom administered right away. So they have to have this because they know eventually they're going to get bit no matter how careful they are. And in a church as well, you are going to be bitten by people. It may be the person sitting next to you, it may be an elder, it may be a deacon, but it's going to happen. And how are you going to respond? Are you going to be angry? Are you going to respond in bitterness? Are you going to go to your friend and tell him, you wouldn't believe what so-and-so just said to me? And it may be a legitimate bad thing that he did or said. How are you going to deal with that to prevent that bitterness from rising up in your soul? The antivenom of forgiveness. That's how we do it. A church that, that can't forgive is not a church that's going to love. No matter how good the people, no matter how kind they are, no matter how tender-hearted they are, there's always going to be somebody who does something wrong to somebody else. And without forgiveness, then it's just going to amount to a bitter, angry, frustrated church. And I've met people who have become Christians and basically left because they couldn't deal with the people. And I've asked them, well, you know, what was the problem? Well, they did this or they did that. And normally it's rather superficial stuff. It's not, you know, they, they killed somebody or anything like that. It's they spoke bad about them or they did this or some kind of gossip. And I said, well, you know, wasn't it your duty to forgive them? Could you not forgive that person? And oh, no, no, it was just so bad. It was so bad. Well, that's not an excuse. Paul says we are to forgive one another. How? What's the standard that we use to forgive? As Christ forgave you. So there's a Christological significance to this forgiveness. It goes as deep and it goes as profound as Christ's forgiveness for you. You're angry at your husband. Your husband legitimately did something to make you angry and you've forgiven him, but you're still angry. Is that how Christ forgave you? Does Christ hide your sins behind his back and every once in a while when he's really mad, take it out and shove it in your face and say, remember this. No, it says, as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He takes our sins and throws them into the bottom of the sea. So if you're forgiving your brother, and yet you're still harboring some kind of anger or bitterness, then you haven't forgiven him. Because ask yourself, is that how Christ has forgiven you? And your sins are far greater against him than anything your husband has done to you. Think of the worst possible thing your husband could do to you or a wife could do to a husband. It's nothing close to what you've done for, against Christ. And yet he's completely forgiven that sin. So the standard here is a deep standard. And a man or woman who, who can't forgive or thinks that simply superficially covering over a sin until it's convenient to bring it out again and remind that person has no idea of the depth and the enormity of your sin against Christ and all that he went through to ensure that sin was truly forgiven. That is how our sins are to be towards one another, completely and utterly forgiven as Christ has forgiven us. 
So without this kindness, without this uh, compassion, this, this tenderheartedness, the word tenderhearted, it's a beautiful word here. It, it simply means to, to put yourself in their situation. To think of them, you as them. A woman has got a horrible husband who mistreats her. How do you treat her? Well, you imagine yourself in that situation. What would you want? What kind of help would you want in that situation? And you treat that person accordingly. Maybe you think the way you, let's go back to eating. I'm not picking on eating, but let's say you see a person who, who eats in a, a weird way. What do you say? Well, they were not trained the way I was. So therefore, I can, I'm not going to hold it against them. If I was in that situation, I wouldn't want people looking glaringly at me and, and, and snarking at me for the way I ate. So you don't treat them that way. You treat them with a respect and a dignity, no matter what kind of emotions that action wells up in you. We forgive them and we treat them with a kindness. Now, how do we do this? Again, I think I've given some instruction on how to do this. I want to leave with a point, one point. Justin's very good at giving final points. I'm not. So if I give three points, you're going to forget three points. If I give one, you may remember part of one, but at least you remember part of it. So just one point on how to do this, so a tip. First of all, not first of all, it's only one point, so why would I say first? Uh, Paul actually does that in uh, Romans 1. He's expressing why he's thankful to people, and he says, first of all, I'm thankful that, and he never gets to a second one. He just is so overwhelmed by the first one that the second one goes by the wayside. So anyway, the, what I would say is, is primarily, let's put it that way, primarily, that you would be watchful over your soul. Uh, there, there should be a self-reflection that all of us instinctively have in our interaction with people. Uh, we are to examine our heart. Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is there wrath? Uh, do I speak down to people? If so, then we are to take action. We are to confess sin. We are not just to, to say, uh, well, not just neglect it, we are to confess the sin and bring it before the Lord and ask for his forgiveness. And that there would be a change of behavior towards that person. If there's any bitterness in your heart, there should be an instinctive reaction to you to go to the Lord in prayer, to forgive that brother, to pray that that bitterness will be put aside. I mean, there are people that I've talked to that you ask them about a problem that they have, and they express this bitterness, this anger, towards the person, and you question more, and you found out that it's been going on for months, sometimes years against them, and you think, how can you live that way? How can you live knowing that bitterness is something that offends God, that it shows you that you're not a loving person? How can you live for a day, let alone an hour, with that bitterness in your heart, and let it just fester there? You're setting yourself up for a downfall if you let that exist in your heart. First of all, you're commanded to not let it be there, to get rid of it. And if you let it lie there, it's not just going to lie there like a little puppy on a rug. It's going to fester. It's going to grow. And many of the people I know that have fallen away from the faith, it, it started with a bitterness or an anger that they never dealt with to where they finally just couldn't stand the people so much that they separated themselves from them and, and never darkened the door of a church again. That's what happens to bitterness. That's what it does. So the first sign in, in your relationship to somebody or anybody that there's an anger in your heart or that there's a bitterness there, immediately jump on it. Deal with it. Pray about it until that bitterness is gone. If you have to, invite that brother over for supper, for lunch, go out with him for coffee, talk to him, tell him about the bitterness, have him pray with you. There are a million practical things we can do to get rid of bitterness. And we have to do that. So any sign 
of these negative emotions, these things contrary to love, when they well up in your heart, if you sit upon them, if you don't deal with them, if you don't mortify them, that you're setting yourself up not only for misery, but for a possible falling away of the faith. I just think that when I talk to those people, there's such an unhappiness in their, their souls as they describe this. And I think, shouldn't the very unhappiness that you're experiencing, shouldn't that be enough to drive you back and seek forgiveness of this brother or drive you to the Lord to seek help? Just the utter misery that it's bringing about in your heart. The idea that another brother could make me so unhappy should be a real reason to question, is our walk with the Lord according to the way he wants us to walk? And I would say it's not. It's not. It's a sign that you are definitely on the wrong side. You are not walking with God if that bitterness stays there. So this idea of forgiveness, it's so important. It's so important. We can all act kind. We can all put ourselves in another person's position. But, but I find the forgiveness often in people is the hardest thing for them to do. They just can't let go. Something was done to them. Sometimes it was superficial. And there are people that walk around simply looking for something to be angry about. And those people are often the most unforgiving people I've ever met. And again, it's a dangerous thing. So as soon as you see this in your heart, brothers, well up against it. Use all the provisions God has given to mortify this sin. And I used to, when I was a pastor at a church, I used to always, uh, maybe a couple times a year, I would preach a sermon, very, not this same one, but very much like this, on the subject of forgiveness. And uh, I would always go to it thinking, you know, the passage here is teaching about forgiveness. I really need to focus on this. And I've done it so many times in the past. I thought, Lord, what am I going to say that's not going to just be a, you know, a carbon copy of what I said before? And the Lord always gave me something unique to say, a different perspective on forgiveness that was helpful to me, it was helpful to the brethren. And the time I was there, I probably did it like seven or eight times. And every time I did it, and we're talking about a church, maybe take these uh, first four rows, and that was the size of our church, and maybe half of those filled up. Every time I did that, I have a brother come up to me or a sister say, you know, brother, I needed that. I have anger and bitterness towards the brother that you brought to the surface in my heart. And they would thank me for that. And if that's the case in that small church, I know it's the case here. There are people here, I guarantee you, that you have anger in your heart towards another brother. Don't come tell me about it afterwards, but I know if it happened in that small church again and again of mostly very compatible people of the same social strata, I know what's happening in this church as well. So if it is, then I encourage you to go to the Lord, to mortify this. If you need help, counsel, come to an elder, go to a deacon, go to somebody you trust, and, and deal with this sin in your heart that you are not loving your brother. It'll, it'll destroy your faith. It'll destroy your soul if you don't. And I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen here, brethren. It's happened here. The people we never thought it would happen to when they were among us. So deal with it. Take it before God. Take it for another brother. Deal with these sins so that you can truly love people. So the love of God would overflow and abound in your heart towards not only those among you, but those who are outside as well. Because Paul doesn't want this love just to be focused on us. He wants us to take it out to the world. And if you can't do it amongst yourselves, then any missionary endeavors we have will be utterly useless. Why would God bring people in here when we can't love each other, when he wants that love to be shed to the world at large? So I hope this has been helpful, brother. It's been helpful for me. Um, 
So we'll close in a word of prayer. And any questions or concerns you have, please feel free to talk to me or an elder, and we'll uh, be happy to explain more about this. But again, I just can't emphasize the importance of this love, uh, how much Paul deals with it, and how much instruction we have. And I've just basically touched the surface of this, but I hope it's been helpful. And if you are here and, and don't know Christ, then this love is for you as well. It's available to all who come, all who ask, that your sins will be forgiven. You will be uh, brought into the family amongst the vipers to grow and be sanctified with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed humbled by the great love you have for us, the love that put your Son upon a cross to die for us. As the, the old hymn says, here it's guilt we may estimate when we see your very Son dying on a cross that we may be forgiven. We truly see uh, the enormity, the power, uh, the seriousness of our sin. And knowing that sin is forgiven by him, how can we not forgive our brother, Father, for the sins they have against us? So let us be mindful of this, Father and be able to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us, so that that love uh, that Christ pours out in our hearts would be active, would be powerful, not only among ourselves, but among those outside of the church. For as Christ himself said, they will know this, that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. We thank you for these things, Father. In Christ's name, amen.